Thank you, Paul Offit, for joining us. As many of our listeners know, you were on our debut CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast about a year ago. We discussed your new book at the time, Overkill, and we also discussed a little bit of COVID. Well, we are now about a year later. Paul, you have a new book out titled You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccinations, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. Again, another great book, and I encourage all our listeners to purchase it. And also, Paul, I think now we're going to discuss COVID in a little bit more detail. Very big week for the vaccine, specifically in the 5 to 11-year-olds. But before I get to that, Paul, I want to educate many of our listeners about email etiquette. When all this news broke last week, I got on the computer at 8.01 a.m. I emailed you, Paul. I said, would you come back on the podcast? Four minutes later, I got a reply. I would love to. And now we're here. So again, I know people like to delay replying to emails or not reply at all. But take it from Dr. Paul Offit, who had what we would consider a pretty hectic week this past week or so, four minutes to reply to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. So thank you, Paul. My pleasure. Let's jump into it, Paul. Tuesday, October 26th, an expert panel called the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, composed of infectious disease experts, professors, practicing physicians, advised you on the FDA to authorize the Pfizer. COVID vaccine to five and 11-year-olds. They concluded that the benefits outweighed the risks. On Friday, October 29th, you confirmed that data and you authorized emergency use. Paul, what criteria did you and your group use to authorize this vaccine? Right. So, so I'm on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, which is basically 18 voting members. Uh, the criteria were used, well, well, criteria number one was, is this an important disease in children? I mean, is it worth, is a disease worth preventing? And uh, what we found was that in that 5 to 11-year-old age group, there are, have been 1.9 million cases. There's been at least 8,300 hospitalizations. Among those hospitalizations, at least one-third of those children, 5 to 11, were uh, admitted to the intensive care unit. Although two-thirds of those children who, who came into the hospital had one or more comorbidities that put them at high risk of serious disease, one-third didn't. One-third were otherwise perfectly healthy children. And we learned that, that at least 140 children in that age group have died. The other thing is what's unique to that age group is there's this MIS-C, multi-system inflammatory disease of children, which is primarily a disease of the 5 to 13-year-old, with an average being around 9 years of age, which can be associated with not only lung involvement, also liver, heart, kidney involvement, and, uh, and is occasionally fatal. So is this a disease worth preventing? Yes, it's a disease worth preventing. I think anything that causes children to suffer or hospitalize or die is worth preventing. So then the question is, what data do we have showing that this vaccine works in this age group? So unlike children over 12 years of age or young adults or older adults who are given for Pfizer's vaccine a 30 microgram dose separated by two weeks, this dose is 10 micrograms. So it's a third of the dose given to um, older children or adolescents or adults. And it was a 2,400-child trial, roughly. So roughly 1,600 children got vaccine, 800 got placebo. There were 19 cases of COVID in that trial, 16 in the placebo group for a vaccine efficacy of 91%. Right. So there the question is, is that enough? I mean, normally, for example, when Pfizer did its trial in adults using the 30-microgram uh, dosage uh, three weeks apart, that was a 40,000-person trial for the over 16-year-old. Now, here you have for the 12 to 15-year-old, 
it was roughly a, a 2,400 child trial. And the same thing here with five to 11 year old, a 2,400 child trial. Is that enough? say that this vaccine is effective? And I think the answer is yes. I mean, given the, the, the immune responses that these children had, which was, by the way, even across, if you look five, if you look five to six-year-old, seven to eight-year-old, nine to 10-year-old, 11-year-old, they all had pretty much the same immune response. So that's the most frequent question I get asked. Right. I mean, if I have an 11-year-old, should I give them that lower dose or the higher dose? But certainly the 11-year-old had an excellent immune response at that 10 microgram dose. So I, I think we felt comfortable with that. It's unusual. In the world of pediatric vaccines, usually you have data on children. You don't have this massive amount of data in older children or young adults or older adults. So you have this tremendous sort of platform to stand on. And then the issue of safety. I mean, what do we know about safety? Obviously, when you do a 2,400 child trial, that's not enough to pick up what is a rare risk of, of myocarditis, which is seen at sort of at the highest level in the 16 to 17 year old at around one per 5,000, one per 7,500. You're not going to pick that up in a 2,400 child trial. So, um, and there was no myocarditis that was seen in this trial. But nonetheless, I mean, you have to worry that myocarditis is going to be a consequence of this vaccine in the young child. I mean, what made us feel better were a couple things. One is that when you looked at the trial in over 16-year-old people, myocarditis was primarily of disorder of the 16 to 29-year-old. So it was young people, not older people. So then the question was, okay, if you drop down to 12 to 15 years of age, is it going to be even greater? Well, the fact is, both in the United States and Israel, the risk of myocarditis in the 12 to 15-year-old was less. So that was reassuring. Second is that the 5 to 11-year-old gets a lower dose, which is also reassuring that the myocarditis were it to occur will be, will be presumably less frequently. Also, if you look at classic myocarditis, I mean, bad myocarditis, the kind of myocarditis caused by Coxsackie virus and other viruses, that's usually a post-pubertal phenomenon. It's not typically a, a, as, as often seen in this age group. So I think all those things made us feel better. And, and as you know, there's going to be systems in place to answer the question, is there myocarditis in this age group? And if so, at what frequency? Great, Paul. Thank you. Prior to the vote that occurred this past Friday, 140,000 public comments were submitted to the FDA. Is that a lot of comments? Does someone actually read them? And what, what was the sort of the majority of those comments? What were they talking about? Well, it was what happened was I can tell you that every voting member on that committee, all eight, 10 of us received at least 3,000 emails over that weekend. I think I received 3,100 emails from people. Um, it came from an anti-vaccine activist who posted our names and email addresses and then basically had a call to arms to submit to us these emails of urging us to vote no. So uh, do people read those emails? I think they have to. I think the this, this CDC has to read them. I don't have to read them, but the right. CDC yeah. has to read them. Uh -huh. um, but it certainly, I mean, I was getting an email a minute. I called our hospital and said, help, help me. But they really couldn't help me because they're all from individual people. It's something I you can block them. But you're only blocking one at a time. There was no getting around this. There was one anti-vaccine activist who had this so-called sub-stack, I think it's called, where he put out that call to arms. Unbelievable. Paul, you talked about numerators. 8,300 children between 5 and 11-year-olds have been uh, hospitalized, a third in the ICU, over 140 deaths. You talked about MISC. But you didn't talk, Paul, about the denominator. There are 28 million 5 to 11-year-olds in the country. So my question to you is, again, if you do the math, and you come up with that ratio, it is very, very, very small. So again, can you talk to us about, there's a lot of parents who don't want the vaccine for their children. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But if you look at that ratio, okay, when you authorize a vaccine, do you look at just the numerator, the total cases to save one life versus the rare, rare, rare chance that a child will be hospitalized, God forbid, die from the disease? 
I don't think it's that rare. I mean, if you look, for example, at that 2400 child trial, there were, there were um, 800 people in the placebo group and there were 16 cases. I mean, that's, that's, an, that's a rate of 2%. That's a 2% instance of infection. That's not so small. And, and when you consider that these children had moderate disease, meaning fever, respiratory symptoms, um, some of those children may go on to develop more long-term symptoms because that does happen. Um, so I don't think that's so rare. And, and, and obviously it's not, I mean, it's not like much more common diseases like, say, rhinovirus infections, the common cold. It's not as common as that. But, but this is a virus that can cause serious and occasionally fatal illness. And certainly this multisystem inflammatory disease is a problem. Uh, so I think that if you're going to try and prevent a disease like this, you have to make sure that the number one consideration is that the vaccine is safe. Because you're right, while it is true that, that children get infected less frequently, and when they get infected, they get less infected less severely. I mean, 93% of the deaths in, from this virus are in people over 55 years of age. But children still can suffer and die from this. I mean, how many children die from flu every year? Typically in the United States, it's between 75 and 150. This virus causes more than that. And in fact, even if you just take the 5 to 11-year-old, this uh, infection would move the, that, that death rate into the top 10 for, for children in that age group. So I, I think it's, it's a disease worth preventing. Great. Paul, in addition, we know the vaccine decreases the risk of getting COVID, especially serious disease. A controversial topic, Paul, does it decrease the risk of transmission? Okay, we know there are breakthrough cases in adults whose immunity has waned. What do we know about children, whether it's teenagers and now this, this group of 5 to 11-year-olds? Are we offering the vaccine not only to reduce their chance of getting COVID, but also to decrease their risk of transmission to parents, grandparents who may be at higher risk for, like you said, serious disease? I think the answer is likely yes. I mean, if you look at studies out of Singapore, for example, where they take people who were vaccinated who then have mild illness and compare them to people who are unvaccinated who have mild illness, is there any difference in the, in the rate of transmission? And, and again, it was looking at PCRs and cycle times, which I think is an imperfect way at looking at the shedding of live infectious virus. But what they found was that over time, there was much less, at least the PCRs were, uh, the cycle times were much longer. And so, and that happened much more quickly. And so the sense was, is that you shed virus at, at, at lesser quantities and for less long if you're vaccinated than if you're not, which makes perfect sense. But you still can shed virus. You know, the, 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 I think the, the biggest communications error we made with this vaccine was the use of the term breakthrough. I mean, if you're, if you're vaccinated and you have an asymptomatic, mildly symptomatic infection, that's a win. I mean, that, that's, that's what you want. Um, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, fully vaccinated, gets an asymptomatic infection. You watch this on the news, you think he was in the ICU. I mean, he has an asymptomatic infection. He won. Right? Lindsey Graham, I mean, just to quote Republicans, but Lindsey Graham, um, when he was vaccinated, got a mild upper respiratory tract infection, had sinusitis, and then said correctly, I quote, this would have been much worse if I hadn't been vaccinated. That's right. That's what you expect from any vaccine. It's the rare vaccine that protects against asymptomatic infection or, or even mildly symptomatic infection. The goal is to keep people from having to seek medical care, either through their doctor or go to the hospital or go to the ICU. This vaccine does that. I think that was the biggest mistake we made here was that term breakthrough. Um, it's, that's, if you are vaccinated and you then nonetheless are hospitalized, that's a breakthrough illness. Right. Gotcha. Paul, you mentioned high-risk groups, obesity, obviously, even in the 5 to 11-year-olds, asthma, children with developmental disorders. Two-thirds of the hospitalized children you talked about, Paul, had underlying conditions. As we speak, Paul, the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is meeting to make recommendations. Is there concern from you that there may be, to use the boxing term, a split decision? In other words, recommend it for the high-risk people 
and not for the low-risk people, or even not recommend it if you had a prior infection, which recent CDC data showed, I believe, 42% of blood samples of 5 to 11-year-olds had COVID antibodies. So what is going to be the referee or the CDC decision this afternoon? I would be surprised if the if the CDC offered a layered approach, as they did, for example, when the vaccine first rolled out, the Pfizer Moderna vaccines. Here was sort of tier one, tier two, tier three, because one third of children who were hospitalized still had absolutely no risk factors. So that, that's a high percentage. I mean, if it was one percent that had no risk factors, then I could possibly imagine. But one third is is high. But the seroprevalence data were interesting. I mean, that, those data were presented to us um, by a CDC person who showed us that about 42% of, of children between 5 and 11 years of age were seropositive. That was surprisingly high to me. And so, so one could ask the, answer the question then, well, if I was naturally infected, isn't it true that it's likely that I will develop sort of memory B cells in the same manner that I developed memory B cells where I vaccinated, and that those memory B cells would protect, would protect me against serious illness? While I realize that if I'm naturally infected, then then get a vaccine, that that will boost my neutralizing antibodies, decrease my chance of then getting an asymptomatic or, or mildly symptomatic infection. But I don't care. I don't care if my child has that because I don't quite feel comfortable about the vaccine yet. It, I think it is clear that that a boost in the, the name of giving a vaccine to someone who's vac- who's already been naturally infected is a value, not only in that it, it, it increases your neutralizing antibodies, but also broadens your antibody response to uh against these variants of concern. So I think clearly there's a value there. And just logistically, I mean, can you imagine trying to say, okay, we, we won't vaccinate those who've been naturally infected, then then do serological studies on anybody before they get a vaccine would be right. nightmarish. Sure. And, and then we went through this with the adults. I mean, the same issue came up with the adults. And the administration actually, when they, they talked about mandates, uh, did consider whether or not a person could reasonably say, look, I've been naturally infected. I don't want to be mandated to get a vaccine because I think I'm protected against serious disease. You probably are. It is tricky. I, I agree with that. Yeah, and that there was a big headline this past week from the CDC: vaccine immunity was better than natural immunity from previous infections. That was the headline. Dug a little bit deeper. The study design a little bit controversial and contradicted, I believe, a recent Israeli study which didn't say that. So, so your thoughts again? I, I know you're. We are both advocates of the vaccine, but your thoughts about that CDC headline and the Israel study, which sort of contradicted that vaccine immunity versus natural immunity. Yeah, I, I guess I've been most impressed. You see, we, we all focus on neutralizing antibodies because it's very easy to study. Um, and I think that is predictive clearly of whether you're protected against infection, meaning asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection or moderately symptomatic infection. But in terms of protection against serious illness, which takes a longer time to develop from when you're first exposed to the virus to when you're in the hospital, you know, struggling for air, um, that takes at least a couple of weeks, which is plenty of time for activation and differentiation of memory B cells to become antibody secreting cells. Uh, there was a nature review paper which went through all of the sort of studies looking at the capacity of natural infection to induce memory B cells. And it's it's excellent. I mean, the, the, the sense you got from reading those studies is that natural infection does induce reasonable frequencies of memory B cells. So I do, I do think natural infection does protect against serious illness. In fact, when the virus first rolled into this country early last year, I can tell you that's what vaccinologists were looking at. Does natural infection protect against severe disease associated with reinfection? Because if it doesn't, you're going to have a hard time making a vaccine. I mean, so for example, you can get gonorrhea over and over again. You can get group A beta strep, uh, you know, throat infections over and over again. Natural infection doesn't appear to protect. And that's why it's so hard to make those vaccines. Here, natural infection did appear to protect. I mean, that was those were the early observations. And, and to me, it's consistent with the immunological data. So I saw that CDC headline as well and was surprised by it. 
Great, great. Paul, take off your medical hat for a second. Are some of the uh, recommendations that you make regarding the vaccine to look at society, to keep schools open, to restore that terrible phrase, return to normalcy for family and work life? Does that come into play when you look at a vaccine and children's health? Not in terms of talking to the parent. I, I think that a parent is not going to vaccinate their child unless they think that it is clearly of benefit to their child. They're not going to vaccinate the, the child as a shield for older people. Uh, they're not. I, I just don't find that's a persuasive argument. But it is true. I mean, you know, the, if you're talking about 28 million children here in the 5 to 11-year-old age group, that's a little less than 10% of the population. Um, will that help in terms of providing herd immunity to, that can allow us to finally significantly slow the spread of this virus? Yes. I suspect the uptake isn't going to be great. I mean, if you look sort of at the greater than 65-year-old, like 85 to 90% of people are vaccinated. But as you take these 10-year increments and go down, it generally gets lower and lower. So that you're at the 12 to 15-year-old age group, that's 45% uptake. That's less than half for a vaccine that's been around for a few months. I suspect that the 5 to 11-year-old uptake would be less than that. Yeah, Paul, right now, I think a third of parents say they will vaccinate their 5 to 11-year-old right away. Over 40% say they're unlikely to vaccinate their children, and about two-thirds of them are worried about the child's fertility. Paul, you're a vaccine expert. You can go back to the polio vaccine, where there were rumors that it would sterilize people. The thought is now, again, for some of the scientific parents, that there's some similarity between the spike protein on the SARS-CoV-2 and placental cell surfaces. So again, the conspiracy theories saying a child's fertility at the age of 5 to 11, if they get the vaccine, is going to be affected. Your comment? Right. So, so there, there were two researchers who wrote an, a letter to the European Medicines Agency, which is essentially similar to the uh, FDA here, stating, just as you said, that the SARS-CoV-2, the, the gene, the, the sequence, the gene, genetic sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein mimicked a protein on the surface of placental cells called syncytion 1. First of all, that wasn't true. It didn't. It was like saying you and I have the same social security number because they both contain the number five. That, that's not it. Two is that those two proteins are immunologically distinct. Um, so an antibody response to SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is, isn't an antibody response to placenta. Thirdly, if you look at, at, for example, the phase three trials that were done by Pfizer and Moderna, there were, there were 36 pregnancies, instances of pregnancy that occurred during that placebo-controlled trial. If, if it was true that it affected fertility, then virtually all of those instances of pregnancy should have been in the placebo group, but they weren't. It was divided 18 and 18, which is to say the vaccine neither enhanced nor negatively affected fertility. And finally, if an antibody response against SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is also an antibody response to your placenta, remember, we just had more than 100 million people over the last year and a half who've been naturally infected with that virus who make an antibody response to the spike protein. So what's happened to the birth rate? It stayed about the same. So there's not a shred of evidence that supports that. But nonetheless, once you ring the bell, it's hard to unring it. I continually hear that, that question, including from parents of young children. Well, let's look at sort of current state in the future. I spoke a few months ago with Ron Baran, a pediatric emergency medicine doctor from Schneider Children's in Israel. He basically said this is, was around the time that Israel was introducing the first booster shot, that Israel is living with COVID. In other words, it's here to stay. They're going to live with it. They're going to adapt with it. Contrary, Australia has adopted a COVID zero policy. And we've seen on the news what's going on with law enforcement and people who are breaking some of these mandates. And then, Paul, breaking news, front page of the Wall Street Journal today, Shanghai Disneyland had a line of 30,000 people. Why? Because a park member tested positive for COVID the day before 
they wouldn't let anyone on this past Sunday leave the park without getting tested. Okay, a quote in the paper, I never thought that the longest queue in Disneyland would be for a nucleic acid test, one visitor said on social media. What is the future in the United States? Are we going to be living with COVID like Israel? Are we going to move toward a COVID zero policy? Is it going to be mandated for five to 11 year olds? What do you envision the future of COVID now that we have expansion of the vaccine for younger children? Are we going to live with COVID or are we going to start to crank down, mandate it for not only public employees, private employees, school age children? Your thoughts on that, Paul? Well, I think we're going to have no choice but to live with COVID. Um, I think this virus will become endemic. And I think we're going to also have no choice but to try and maintain a highly vaccinated population because we are going to be at risk of this virus for as long as it exists in the world. And I think it's going to exist in the world for a while. And the fact is, we still vaccinate children every year with polio vaccine. We haven't had a polio case of polio in this country since the 1970s. We do it because it still exists in Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan. So I think I think the notion of a zero policy for COVID is fanciful. It's like having a zero policy for RSV or flu. It's not going to happen. So, so then the question becomes, when, do, when does that line get crossed? When does the flu line get crossed, if you will? I mean, you know, every year we'll have 400 to 700,000 hospitalizations from influenza. Every year we'll have 20,000 to 60,000 deaths from influenza. And we, at some level, grandfather that in. I mean, I think if we masked and social distance in the in the winter months, we would decrease the instance of flu in this country, but we don't do it. And in fact, we did. I mean, if you look at, right. at last year, I mean, typically there's like 75 to 150 flu deaths a year in children. Last year, we had one flu death in the United States. That's what happens when you mask, social distance, shut down schools, shut down business and restrict travel. I mean, how hard can that be? Just kidding. Um, so, you know, the, the, um, I think we're going to have no choice but to live with this virus. I just don't know what that level of, of infection and hospitalization and death is that makes us think, okay, now we can go back to normal. Great, Paul. Uh, thank you for the expertise. In closing, Paul, what have we learned from COVID? There's going to be future pandemics. You and others predict that there's going to be future. What have we learned? What have we developed that's going to help us respond to the next pandemic, whether it's a year from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? So this is the third pandemic potential virus in the last 20 years. I mean, you had SARS-1 in 2002, you had MERS in 2012, now you have this virus. I think it's fair to say there's going to be another pandemic potential virus because there's always spillover. I mean, there's spillover from animals to people, and it's going to continue to happen as long as we have close close association with animals and we eat animals, mammals like ourselves. I think that the the the, the lessons, hopefully, will be one, we need a, 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 a um, international surveillance system so that the minute this kind of virus pops up, we know about it. I mean, we shouldn't have had to have depended on a whistleblower in Wuhan to tell us that there was a virus that was circulating and killing people. That shouldn't have had to. This man, this brave man, eventually died. Um, there should be a better surveillance system that the entire world buys into because the entire world is at risk, as we just learned. Two is I think with that you need to have a, a much better national response at every in every country in terms of providing masking and and uh, respirators and 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 this sort of testing and quarantining the testing I mean there was so much there were other countries that did such a better job of testing than we did and that hurt us I think in identifying I mean we you know we have we the U S has you know four percent of the world's population and twenty percent of its deaths. Um, we were terrible about how we handled this. I, I'd like to think we've learned from this. If we can't learn from this, this virus, which basically brought us to our knees, I mean, it caused massive joblessness, massive homelessness, food insecurity, increase in domestic violence, child abuse. I mean, what more do you need that this kind of virus can completely disrupt your life? Um, hopefully we've learned. 
Absolutely, Paul. Again, last comment now. Again, both of us advocating for the vaccine, you a little bit stronger than me based on the positions that you uh, hold in the FDA. Let's talk to our audience who are listening to the podcast on social media. They're on social media 24 hours a day, okay? And there is a specific entity called Snapchat. You familiar with Snapchat, Paul? Okay. The message disappears, okay? So again, I want to sort of go back. There's a lot of vaccine skeptics, not only for adults, but also now for this 5 to 11-year-old. I saw the analogy that the messenger RNA, it delivers instructions to the cells and then disappears. So all these side effects that you think that you have a virus inside of you or you have a a messenger RNA inside of you, talk to us using that social media analogy of how the message or the mRNA disappears and how would you advocate for getting the vaccine using that Snapchat analogy? Right. Well, the the um, the messenger RNA is a is a very natural product. We have a cell. Most cells in our body have about two hundred thousand copies per cell of messenger RNA. The messenger RNA is just a genetic blueprint that teaches our cells how to make a variety of proteins and enzymes which we need to live. Uh, the messenger RNA for this protein, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, enters your cell. It then gets translated to the, through the ribosomal system to make a protein, which it does for a few days, and then it disappears. Just like in Snapchat, it disappears. Gone. So it's, uh, it's a very natural way to do this, and it's, it's a, an amazingly powerful way of doing it. I think what, what amazes me about all of this, and when the dust settles on all of this, I think if you'd asked a thousand scientists in this country back in, in January of, of uh, 2020, when we finally isolated and sequenced this virus, do you think in 11 months, we're going to have two large clinical trials using a novel technology, mRNA, that shows basically 90 plus percent efficacy, is remarkably safe at preventing this virus and induces what appears to be at the moment fairly long-lived memory responses, which is a fairly long-lived protection against serious illness. I don't think there's a scientist on this planet that would have thought that was possible. It is remarkable what we've done, but we, we continue at some level to damn this vaccine inadvertently by using terms like breakthrough, which I think implies something, which implies failure. Uh, with, an, with an asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection, that's not a failure. I think this false notion that if you're vaccinated, you, you will shed just as much virus as if you weren't vaccinated, if you had a mild infection, that's wrong. And I think when President Biden stood up in mid-August and said, you know, that uh, as of September 20th, we're going to have a booster dose for everybody over 16. I mean, what he was saying was two doses wasn't enough, whereas all the evidence is that two doses is enough. So I, I think, you know, that, that now suddenly, are, are you fully vaccinated? That was the question I got asked for for weeks at a time. Am I fully vaccinated with two doses? And we've created this kind of booster mania, which I think has also made people think they that this vaccine doesn't work as well as, as it does. Absolutely. Paul, we five to 11-year-olds, we hope to hear from the CDC after hearing from the FDA. How about children less than the age of five? Is that on the horizon? Yes, it is on the horizon. I mean, again, I'm on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. Well, I know that we have dates coming up in the future that have been set aside. Um, so the, 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 there are studies ongoing for the six-month-old to up to five years of age. The dose is now not uh, the 10 micrograms that's being given to the, um, the five to 11-year-old, but rather uh, three micrograms. So it's a tenth of the adult, the adult dose. Great. And we'll Excellent. see what those data look like. Excellent. We look forward to hearing from that. And again, thank you, Paul, for your timely expertise. I am glad I was able, my email was able to slip through the thousands that you were receiving uh, from those anti-vax groups this past week. So again, thank you again for joining us. We look forward to having you on uh, again in the future, Paul. My pleasure.